Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Out of the Tower, where we find philosophy and tech neck and neck. And boy, oh boy, do we have quite a guest for you today. We have the one and only Peter Ferris, the former chief evangelist of Equinix, one of the top data companies in the world. Uh, uh, Peter, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for being on. And we're really going to be discussing a pivotal moment uh, during his career that sort of changed him um, on a spiritual level and how that went to affect how he goes about uh, his many roles uh, as the former chief evangelist at Equinix and how sort of, of that spirituality can play into the greater corporate uh, culture and structure within a given company and especially, if possible even, uh, the data industry. Um, so if we can just uh, jump right in, Peter, um, I would just like to start with the basics. Um, how did uh, your sort of path in data start? How did the whole path well, with, uh, Equinix Well, I started start? with Equinix in 1999 at kind of almost the height of the dot-com you know, explosion. I moved to Silicon Valley from Washington, D.C., and uh, was the vice president of sales in the beginning. And I had operating sales, and then I was the president of, our, of the Americas, and then I was doing strategy. I sat in, uh, I was a senior vice president um, in the office of the CEO. Um, and over the course of 18 years, almost 19 years, I kind of um, gravitated into my final role as chief evangelist, which was, um, which was really more of a give back uh, opportunity for me. In the beginning, I had a number. I had, uh, you know, uh, clear the bar every quarter. Um, we were publicly traded. Um, there was a lot of, uh, you know, pressure to hit the number and make, you know, uh, hit the top line and hit the bottom line and uh, meet all the metrics. And that's how I kind of lived uh, lived day to day, quarter to quarter, year to year. Um, and then I had the u- unique opportunity uh, when the CEO um, let me gravitate into this role as chief evangelist, which was the, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better term, the spiritual advisor for the employees in the company. And when you first sort of joined into that role, that, that that sort of spiritual role, as you put it, is there anything about what was expected of you in that particular, some might consider vague capacity? How that Did, did you observe any um, certain spiritual elements within the company, within the industry at that point in time, uh, just just as you were moving into well, that role, um, something that sort of caught your eye? Not, not so much industry-wide, but there was something at Equinix, which was um, – um, you know, I, I was, I was not a founder, but I was one of the very first employees. And so, um, I had been there the whole time and we had something that we called the magic of Equinix and, uh, the magic was unique to the culture. Um, there was something indescribable, uh, about the, the, the feeling you had, you know, working at this company, we were on this shared mission to kind of shoulder our way into the world and, uh, and into our industry and make a name for ourselves and make an impact, um, in the industry, in the world. But it wasn't just, you know, making the numbers and building, you know, financial value. It was, it was more, um, 
philanthropic than that. It was, you know, uh, you know, we were hoping to make make the world a better place by giving people the ability to communicate more easily, more ubiquitously, globally. That do, that does seem uh, a bit of an attitude that I have seen with a lot of us startups. Really, that that sort of desire to make a difference, to bring that magic. Um, but perhaps you have most certainly. Um, observe certain differences between uh, now and then, of course. Um, did you did you in any way observe that within the company? Just did, did that ever manifest? In what way did it? What I, I would say is, did it manifest on a day to day basis? Was it in the smallest interactions? What is it? Was it in sort of the just the the simplest of mores, the simplest of ethics, and how you go about doing anything? How, how was that really sort of coming into its well, own? I'll how tell was you, that it, manifesting? It, it, um, it took a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, soul searching. We were we were trying to um, put into words uh, what was largely a feeling. Um, you know, when people came to interview for the company. Um, m- Many, if not most, of the people who interviewed there said that they they saw uh, the passion and the and some kind of a spark when they talked to, um, especially the senior executives, and they were saying, "We knew I knew there was something there. I knew I wanted to come and work for that company." And when they when they when they came on with the company, there was this um, energy. Um, there was this feeling that, you know, you were part of something special. And, you know, in the end, we kind of distilled it down and said, you know, it was the magic of Equinix. And we we identified that there was um, <laughs> something special and when we called it magic. Um, but um, I, as I moved into the chief evangelist role, um, I realized that I had to you know, be part of trying to create that, um, understanding, you know, spending more time understanding what, what made the culture work. Um, some people called me the chief cultural officer. Um, and you know, in the world of high tech where everything, you know, is boiled down to bits and bytes and some mathematical equation, um, you know, we were crossing over. I was crossing over into um, something that was uh, maybe more subjective, um, completely unquantifiable for sure. Um, and um, something not not technical and not magical at all. It was um, it was the antithesis of that. And so um, it was my job to start trying to make some of the magic happen. And, and in practical terms, how did that uh, sort of magic so, manifest, would you say? One of the first things I did was I developed a program, and we called it The Walk in the Woods. And we took employees uh, on a Monday morning, uh, usually about 20 employees. Uh, we met at headquarters. I gave them these little mini sleeping bags um, the size of their phone. And I said, this is your, your telephone sleeping bag. Put your phone in your sleeping bag and turn it off for the next three days. And um, the idea was for everybody to check out of work, check out of the world, check out of you know 
the reality as you knew it. And we got on a bus and we went to um, Big Basin State Park uh, down near Santa Cruz, which is one of the redwood, uh, premier redwood uh, forests in Northern California. You can't get more woods than that. Um, It was just, it was magical in itself. And um, we would check out of the world and, and the world today at work is um, your cell phone's on 24 seven. You get 150 average number of emails a day. Um, you, you know, you're, you're, it, it, you're never off. So turning that phone off, literally there were a couple of people who did, who had never turned their phone off before. So it was really, you know, it was oh an out God. of, out of body experience for them. One woman literally said, I don't even know how to turn my phone off. So there was some separation anxiety for sure. And uh, the idea, the the mission was to disconnect from technology, connect with nature, connect with the other people in the group deeply, and connect with yourself. I mean, if you think about it, when you're working all the time, um, you you, kind of lose connections with yourself frequently. And so... This was my attempt to turn the you know turn the cart upside down. And can you imagine a, a senior executive at a company saying, "Turn your phone off and don't don't think about work for three days." And we want to talk about um, everything but work. You know what what you believe, what's working in your life, what's not working in your life. And I want you to look in the mirror and uh, and. Um, and take the time to, to, you know, to, to, to really do some self-exploration, which is, you know, something I don't think many, if any companies ever work, you know, have any kind of programs with employees to do something like that. So that was something unique for sure. And uh, what, what year was all of this uh, taking place? What, what era was this? And 19. So uh, it was um, an experiment uh, the first time. Um, I had employees, uh, out of those 20 employees, a lot of technical engineering types, a number of people from our financial you know, f- uh, financial planning and analysis, engineering and math geeks, you know, geeks for sure. I say that, I say that lovingly, but um, I bl- it, it blew their minds. Of course. Um, one woman said... I didn't know that we were going to be doing this um, because we were sitting around the fire and everybody was telling kind of their life stories, their hopes and aspirations. And she said, if I knew we were going to be doing this on this walk, I would not have come. Um, but now that I, but now that I have come and we are doing this, really, this has changed, this has changed my life because it made me you know she shared some of her life experiences, but more, more importantly, she, she heard the life experiences of the people she worked with every day. And she realized, I didn't know any of these people at all. I knew nothing about these people. And I spend my days, weeks, months, and years with them. But um, I only knew their names. And I might have known whether they were married or had a child or two. I didn't know um, anything else about them. So it was a, a very immersive experience. And when you walked away from that three days, um, you had a changed, re- a deep changed relationship 
a deep bond with everybody else on that on that walk. Um, and I, I realized then and there, this is a this has been a missed this is an opportunity that everybody has, but it's a missed opportunity. Most people think I've got work life balance. I've got work and I've got life, and the, the two do not meet. And so I, I realized the amount of time we spend at work, it's 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 more important than ever to build deep relationships with the people that you spend most of your life with. And those are the people at work. I imagine that would be an incredibly liberating feeling. And um, I, I don't know if you mentioned where uh, within the company, like what department, what her role was, but I would think for individuals who are particularly in an environment that, that champions as as best as I could conjure it, if you'll allow me to say so, a lot of more, I, I don't want to say independent work, but I would say more of a setting and a general work ethic that does not lend itself to a great deal of expression and but introspection, if, word if that, that makes what, sense. What, what emerged is, you know, when you're at work, you have to wear your shield, essentially, right? Of that I'm, I'm strong and I'm capable but what what we ah. what everybody did um, around that fire was get vulnerable, and this vulnerability. And I don't know if you've heard or read any Brene Brown. That vulnerability and expressing it and showing it is essential to build you know deeper trust trust based relationships. That's kind of what happened. And we had eighteen people, and sixteen cried, <laughs> and and two of them said. I haven't cried since I was a child, <laughs> but it just got, it got real. They were, these were people who were not criers, but it's a, uh, it was a very vulnerable, it became a very vulnerable environment in a good way. And people, you know, revealed oh my there goodness. Were a couple of people that revealed stuff to the group, deep, their deepest thoughts um, that they hadn't revealed to their own spouse. So it was pretty, it was pretty powerful. <laughs> I wish I could have been there for this kind of excursion. Coworkers, but not spouses. Wow. That's, if you'll allow me to say, that's metrics right there. Um, out of so curiosity, uh, just to lead into a element of the narrative that uh, earlier discussion did reveal that I thought was quite intriguing, um, and I'd love uh, for you to be able to share that if it wasn't already being alluded to. You mentioned that at uh, at some point or another, uh, there was a, a good friend of yours um, who led these excursions into what it was essentially uh, blindfolded uh, hiking, I believe the words were. And that was, of course, what uh, you found to be uh, incredibly inspiring and perhaps even transformative. So in case that's not what we were in some way alluding to earlier, I would love uh, just to hear a little bit more about that. I mean, I myself have of uh, speaking purely from experience or have in past experiences sort of doubted the ability um, of, of sort of one-off experiences to make a difference for me. A lot of if for me in my own experience, my own an anecdotal uh, timeline, it's all been a very slow burn. But as I was earlier hearing some of the descriptions of this event, I, I, I was able to realize, hey, perhaps there's a little bit more, as I like to say, poetry in the world than one might Absolutely. realize. Would you be able to so go a little more into that? We had all those employees, but um, along for the ride, we had my, my, my uh, 
co-facilitator was a, a guy, Timmy O'Neill, who was a world-class mountain climber, um, who had become an unlikely friend of mine because I was a corporate type. And he was a, um, he was a, a climber. He had never had you know, what he calls a real job. He had just lived in caves and in campgrounds. And uh, the two of us were a, a really good you know, match because we came from opposite ends of the um, universe. <laughs> Um, and Timmy had a friend, Lonnie Bedwell, who, who had his eyes shot out in a hunting accident in uh, Indiana about 18 years prior. And he brought Lonnie along because um, Lonnie was going to help facilitate, um, let people see um, a truly different perspective. Um, and his perspective was one from, you know, being completely and utterly blind. We called him LOL. Uh, lights out Lonnie. He was totally blind. He thought, no, he saw there was no, there was no light <laughs> at all. And his story was extraordinary because like many people, right after it happened, he was married. He had two kids. His wife ended up leaving him and he had to bring up these two young girls by himself. Uh, the challenge was extraordinary. And in the beginning, he felt completely sorry for himself. And he had kind of this seminal moment with when one of his daughters kind of dressed him down and said, you're still my father. You need to, you know, stand up and and start acting like my father. And she kind of gave him gave it to him. And from that day forward, he got up off the couch. And Lonnie is one of the most able bodied hikers I've ever met. Um, he's climbed Kilimanjaro. He's a, he's paddled down the Colorado. He's an expert kayaker. He kayaks blind. Um, and he's decided that he, you know, his disability is that he's blind, but he, he's got no other disabilities. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let anything else get me down. And he would tell us, you're the, we all have disabilities, you know, and the, you know, we can get to know each other and I'll let you know what your disability is. Mine is that I just can't see. Um, but that doesn't mean I can't hike or kayak. And we're all, we're all floored when we heard this. So one night I was talking to him and he said, Pete, I want you to get, give everybody blindfolds tomorrow. And we would lead Lonnie. He had to, we had to be his eyes. So we would be hiking and he didn't want help. He would echolocate. He'd hear you in front of him, in front of you. And you'd have to tell him, you know, <laughs> There's a root, there's a tree, there's a rock, there's a 50-foot cliff on your right. <laughs> um, no, no, be no hand-holding. Hand um, now, once in a while, if it got a little um, little gnarly, you know, he'd, he'd put his pole out so he wouldn't go off a 50-foot cliff. But, um, but he was very self-sufficient, and he said, I want you to experience what it's like to hike blind. And, you know, when you hike with with two good eyes, you're looking all around you. You're looking everywhere, you know, uh, but really where you're going. And you kind of look down and see, see the path. With Lonnie, all he can do is take a perfect next step and then another perfect next step and then another perfect next step. So he has to be totally focused and in the moment and, and aware of hyper aware of, of his environment right there. So the next day we, we started doing this and you're at first you're too completely freaked out and unsure of yourself and saying, this is insane for me to be trying to hike with a blindfold on. 
But after, you know, five or 10 minutes, all of us became quite sure-footed and understanding that it's kind of like life. Just put one foot in front of, uh, one, in, one foot in front of the next and make that next step the best step you can possibly make. And Lonnie realized if you did that, you can get the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, and he did. So it was a huge, powerful lesson for all of us. And I imagine um, that those individuals who were initially doubting in the first five minutes, but hey, he had him in the first five minutes, just like public speaking. So that's magnificent. I imagine that those were um, individuals who didn't perhaps have that initial impulse, that initial mindset of putting one foot in front of the other. There's this feeling of perhaps I've got to have a game plan, well, but then that in itself becomes he, kind of crippling. Like, the, the, bigger, the biggest barrier is really, is not what's in front of you, it's what inside you. They, you, you came to realize that he can do this, I can do this. Uh, it's just putting my mind to it. And the only reason I can't do this is because I've decided I can't. I, I started taking Lonnie. The other thing I did was started taking Lonnie to other corporate. Um, you know, I took him on these speaking engagements. And I started to realize that <clears throat> we take our eyesight for granted. And what we lose is our ability to hear and listen. And many of us, uh, I, I ran sales for years and salespeople sure like to talk. In fact, some some salespeople like to talk so much, nobody else can get an, a word in edgewise. So my the theme with Lonnie was effective listening. You know, Lonnie would, when we were around the fire, sometimes two or three or four people would want that, we you know, we'd start talking about something and we'd get excited about the subject and everybody would start chiming in. And Lonnie would gently say, could we have, could could you guys just not do that? Only one at a time. If you're blind and everybody's talking at once, it's like, you know, it's like water torture. It's like I can only, when somebody talks, I am completely focused on that one person. What they're saying, how they're saying it, the intonation of the words. Imagine if you were blind and you're listening to somebody and you have actually no idea what they look like, no idea what the room, whether you, you know, what the room looks like. And all you're focused on is every single word that that person's saying. So I had these sessions called mindful listening, um, where people I would tell people have a conversation with somebody, and you can't ask them an open-ended question, and you can't say anything for two minutes. That person has to. You have to just listen to that person, then play back what that person said after two minutes. And you and we all realized we, we don't we don't listen. Um, some people are so impatient that you know when somebody else is talking, it you know it's just this interminable time that I have to wait impatiently till I can start talking again. And this was a this was a game changer for a lot of our employees, you know, because when you're listening to you're never you can't learn anything about someone else as long as you're talking. But you can learn everything about a person when you listen, when you ask them an open-ended question and you let them let them talk. So it was um, it was a huge learning experience um, and it started to change the culture and it created more magic than we had before, um, because people are saying, how can a pro how can a company execute a program like this when it isn't, you know, it, aren't we just supposed to try and be increasing productivity and churning out more, you know, widgets and 
working more hours and you're saying work less hours, build deeper relationships. Um, don't talk about work so much. Less is more. You know, I, I said, you know, you'll be more effective if you're a happier, more well-adjusted person. You know, absolutely. And I, and I do think when we, when we speak, um, whether I think you're in a corporate setting or not, about things like being happy and being productive and even wanting to be vulnerable. In my experience, a lot of people do have a, a, a fairly solid idea of what that may be, but the abstractness of it in and of itself of trying to achieve those things because those big imposing words are abstract can be very, very intimidating. So it really seems that you did find a way to sort of crack that nut, really crack the case on that. And from the sound of things, in addition to that, it seems that there was a really good mix of different uh, individuals from different uh, departments within the company. I'm not entirely sure to what extent this program had a reach? What was sort of like the scheduling for that? Like, how did you make sure that you were getting like a healthy mix as opposed to perhaps say, um, if that was the case at all, as opposed to say, just perhaps we're gonna focus on areas in IT because they're the ones whom we've been observing um, on a cultural magical level, if you will, have not been doing great in that department. How, how did sort of, I just wanna understand a little bit better the logistics of all of that before executing the actual excursions. Critical elements of this program. Most most programs are done, you know, what I'm call I'm going to call departmentally. We have departmental offsites, and we have, you know, you have your cohort and your group that probably sits together every day, and then you go offsite and you you do something or you go someplace. And this program had people from all over the United States and all over the world. We had offices in. 43 countries around the world. And so we had Europe and Asia. We didn't, you know, people had to travel to come to this. So there wasn't, the, the, you know, there weren't too many people from overseas, but there was always one or two on every on, on every one. And um, in the U.S., you had people from our operations groups, sales groups, finance groups. So we all worked for the same company, but lar by and large, Nobody knew this, these were a group of strangers that would come together and share, get vulnerable and share their deepest thoughts. One guy on one of the, um, on one of the um, sessions said, Peter, I've been with this company for 15 years and I've you know, worked in the same office and I've known you know, many of the people in the office for 5, 10, 15 years that I've worked with. And he said, I don't know one other person I work with in my office as well as I know everyone around this fire tonight. In two days, he got to, they, you, they got to know each other. And it was extraordinary because there were people, there were people from all ethnicities. It, I mean, when you're in high tech, that's one of the things you, you, you're going to get a lot of different um, people from different walks of life. But it was also interesting that more than half the groups, they were first time college, first generation college educated kids. Their parents were not, not college educated and immigrants. And, you know, what, you know, somebody would say, I moved 15 times before I was 15. And you heard all these extraordinary, incredible stories that you never would have known. And in the end, you hear these stories of resilience and 
um, challenge and uh, redemption and all these different things, which ultimately largen your worldview. If you didn't know this, if you never heard this, and you now understand that these people you work with came come from all parts of the globe and have overcome all sorts of circumstances. <laughs> One woman, you know, I, I always ask, tell me something interesting about, you know, your, you. We want to find one, the most interesting thing. And one woman said, I'm, I have, I'm not an interesting person. There's nothing interesting about me. I, and I challenged her. I said, there must be. She's like, Peter, I'm 32 years old. I live at home with my mother. She's from Guatemala. She speaks Spanish. I speak English. I never learned to speak Spanish. I said, you live, you've lived at home with your mother, mother for 32 years, and you never learn how to speak Spanish. <laughs> and you and you cohabitate the same house. And she told us, you know, this kind of really interesting, extraordinary story. Um, but the world is made up of so many unique and interesting, you know, people. Uh, and that's what this brought to light. I think it's particularly powerful how you managed to take that um, example of a woman who was 32 years old with the company, um, had a mother from Guatemala whom she was living with, and really make that into a more, from the sound of things, a, a more positive a takeaway. Because I think you see in a lot of situations like that, you know, in, in general popular culture in the media, um, almost no matter where you look, there are tons of different uh, forces, if you will, that, that that try to portray that in a very cynical um just generally negative light. Um, and I, and I personally, um, part of my uh, ethic, whenever I try to engage in a professional uh, sphere, no matter where it is for me, it's always being able to bring, as I like to say, sincerity where people least expect it. And it kind of seems like that's what you were doing right there. So that's absolutely a triumph in my book, at least. One thing that I thought was particularly curious, did you ever observe uh, once these sessions were over, um, these individuals who were particularly changed by this and they tried to bring it to that environment? So you mentioned another person who had been working with the company for 15 years. They didn't know anybody within their just general area whom they worked with at all. As you say, it might be just they might know if they're married or not, maybe if they have a pet or not. And then they decided to try and sort of expand their circle of friends, sort of expand that more spiritual element by trying to forge connections with these people who were in their space, maybe didn't necessarily go on the trips themselves. Did you ever see anything like that? I'm curious about just sort well, of the dissemination woman, um, of it all, if you will. She worked in our contracts department, and believe it or not, she ended up leaving the company. And I was so glad and proud that she did, <laughs> because here's the she, um, she, I, I went, she was in our New York office <laughs> and I had occasion, you know, months after the, the, the walk to, to go to our New York office and she ran to her door. She said, Peter, come in here. I've got to talk to you. I got to tell you something. And she, um, she closed the door in her office and she said, Peter, you know, you've completely changed my life and my perspective. You know, I am a third generation. Her last name was Gogan. I'm a third generation female Gogan. I was number one in my law school class. Um, we're all type A overachievers. I, you know, my kids, of course, I'm a tiger mom because I have my kids in 
taking music lessons. Uh, they're in soccer. They're <clears throat> taking extracurricular language, even in elementary school. They're going to be super, 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 super achievers too. She was also someone who was a perfectionist. Yes, she said, I, I can I, relate. I, Peter, you changed my life. The first thing I started doing at work was delegating. I never delegated anything before. I decided that um, instead of trying to do all the, the most of the work and the toughest work myself, because I was the only one I could trust, I started being a super delegator. And people, my people started beating a path to my door. I said, you started really putting them at work. Was everybody pissed off? She said, absolutely not. They all thanked me. They would sit around half the time with nothing to do because I never delegated anything before. I was now giving them, I was trusting them to do the work and do and, and get the job done. And it made me a better manager, but it made me a beloved manager. Uh, my people deeply appreciated it. Um, Peter, I pulled my kids out of almost on the weekends. I pulled my kids out of soccer. My husband, myself, and my three kids go hiking in the woods every weekend. We don't, we're not sitting on the sidelines uh, at soccer games um, Saturdays and Sundays all day. We, we, we go up into the Catskills and we go hiking. And then a couple months later, she wrote me and she said, I'm quitting, Peter. I'm you know, instead of commuting into the city from New Jersey, I took a job five minutes from my house so that I can be home at three o'clock or four o'clock. And when my kids get home from school and, you know, she I still have the letter. It makes me almost cry every time I read it. But she she took the look in the mirror and said, what in the hell am I doing? Um, what in the hell am I doing? There's another option. And she she recognized it. And she's one of the, most people don't do that. They just say interesting stuff. And then they keep kind of go back to the way they were doing things before. But the most rewarding thing is when, you know, a small percentage of the people say, you've touched, you've changed me. You've you, you've opened my eyes. A light switch went on. I'm, 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 cha I'm going to change, go change everything. You'll, you'll have to excuse my silence. I'm just... I'm probably going to need a week to truly process that kind of narrative. Um, I, I, if you'll allow me to say so, I think it was particularly striking how you mentioned that, that she mentioned that her family goes hiking every weekend. They don't, I believe your words were sort of sit on the sidelines on Saturdays and Sundays during soccer games. Because I, because in my experience, I feel like that particular aesthetic of a quote unquote work-life balance, kind of a very powerful uh, feel. It may not necessarily be something that's good for you per se, but especially when you are someone who in their head is trying to think about the work-life balance. That seems in many respects, I would imagine for people, a beautiful, wonderful encapsulation of the life balance to that, but maybe not exactly. And so to be able to take that experience that one had, that transformative experience, and really forge that into a new concrete routine, as I like to say, sort of forging that sort of poetic experience into a brass tacks 
practical, concrete routine. For me, at least, that makes my heart absolutely sing. And, and, and to imagine that these are the kind of um, results we were you were seeing in a program like this. You know, maybe maybe not every single time. You know, granted, there's there's always going to be outliers, but to to, to imagine that that would be any sort of trend whatsoever is, I honestly, there are no words. Uh, there are no words. And I'm what you call so, Peter, a logo this, file. <laughs> the, after doing these programs for a couple of years, uh, in my third year, I started realizing that these programs were first outliers for sure. Um, I found some other companies that were incubating programs like this. And, you know, most people uh, on the surface would say, this is just, oh, this is real Silicon Valley. This is real California stuff. This is so far out there. Um, but when you start to think, when you start with a concept of work-life balance um, and you say, you know, with, with technology, when your cell phone is on 24 hours a day, when you wake up in the morning and you're in um, bed and you check your email, you're already at work. And at night, when you, when you, just before you go to sleep, you check email, you're at work. <laughs> so, you know, unless you create um, some life, um, work and life, the, the line is blurred. I don't see them uh, as mutually exclusive. Life is life, and you just have to find balance. Um, the other thing I realized is, you know, in, in Silicon Valley especially, and in high tech, you hire people with a resume that, you know, um, are pretty geared into, you know, in, into um the stuff that you need to accomplish. You know, a lot of engineers, a lot of uh, analytical financial people. <clears throat> and, you know, <clears throat> it could easily become a very homogenous group. Um, but I started to realize that balance is more important, is it's corporate balance, uh, cultural balance is just as important as personal you know, life balance, um, you know, balance, you know, if you're, if your company is out of balance and you have, and you're too heavily loaded or completely loaded up on a certain, you know, personality type, a certain skill type, this is not good. This is not good for the, you know, for the, for the organism, for the, for the, for the, for the corporation. Um, it's the diversity of, um, cultural diversity, um, thought diversity, um, uh, which truly builds a stronger, um, a stronger strategy, a stronger view and a stronger, um, more resilient, um, environment when times get tough. Um, it helps you see things from different views and different perspectives. Um, so this idea of balance and diversity, um, it, it, I, I, I learned, um, firsthand uh, becomes essential for the corporation, and it's not a um, it's 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 more than uh, I mean if 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 you think I mean companies especially in Silicon Valley are narrowly focused on IQ. I want to hire the best and the brightest. I want to hire the people who were the top in their class. But we started. Um, uh, you know, incubating the thought that we need to start hiring for EQ, emotional intelligence. Um, um, people who um, have a, a different perspective, broader perspective, who are more empathetic to, you know, when, uh, not they're not judging people 
um, making snap judgments and um, being intolerant of if they're course. not, you know, you know, doing things exactly the way they want. So uh, this 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 idea of EQ um, really is an extension and a juxtaposition of IQ, um, and it's an extension of creating balance inside the culture and inside the corporation, which um, ultimately builds um, the best in work environment um, that, that people are going to actually be, you know, happy and motivated and excited to work in. Work and life balance through a balance of EQ and IQ. Absolutely, absolutely sound. Out of curiosity, did you, uh, you just made me think of something very particular. Did you ever experience, uh, perhaps not at all, but did you ever experience any kind of pushback um, from anyone higher up who were just saying, you know, we, we like some of these results, but this is putting on a strain on some time, on communication, or just 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 general pushback as to they were saying, you know, hey, we can't do it this way. We need you. To, we, we would suggest you want to make you might want to make some of these kind of changes, even if you sensed that well, this might negatively absolutely. impact. There the were program. other um, senior executives who are, you know, Harvard Harvard educated, Kellogg educated, analytical, very analytical people who who just want data um, and they want to be able to analyze the data. And so they want, they wanted to quantify the results of this program, literally quantify the results. And I did work on uh, getting, you know, Google had some programs and Aetna life insurance had some programs and there is a way to get some quantification and quantified data. But I kept going back to um, these in the absence of ease, you know, of saying, well, you know, work productivity went was upward and to the right for two points uh, per person, you know, which is was going to be in the short term impossible. The sample size was too small, also. But I, 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 um, I surveyed every single person, and I ended up having almost two thousand people that went through my various programs, and ninety five or ninety six percent said this was one of the greatest things that they had that one of the greatest programs they had ever done greatest things they'd done in any corporate environment and so i said i can't quantify how it changed them but i can tell you how it made them feel and you know i you know i know we increased our corporate allegiance i remember one person called me after they came back from the they had just started we reserved most of the spots for people that had been with the company for a while. There was an open slot. Somebody that had only been, you know, with a company for a couple of months went on one of the walks and and told his mother about this three day experience. And his mother said, "You what? You, you you went out and you you went hiking and you sat around a campfire and you slept in tents and." The company paid for you to do this for three days, and you met all these other people and had a deep connection with all these other people. And he said, yeah. And there was a pause, and she said, don't ever leave that company. <laughs> That's the most wonderful, remarkable thing I've ever heard from any corporate you know, experience. And I think there were, you know, there, there were so many people that still the buzz around this program and, and at the end of the year there's there's employee satisfaction surveys you know these programs were always frequently mentioned in you know 
somewhere in these in these corporate <laughs> surveys um, where people are saying that you know you know the the fact that the senior ex- the, the the senior executive team endorses and sponsors a program like this speaks volumes about how much they care for the employees and that and that and and, and that and that makes us feel valued and that's the, the best thing you could ever have an employee say I can't imagine any higher praise personally. Out of curiosity, just building upon that, in terms of implementing these programs and you know convincing others of their worth and the long-term benefit benefits, do you find any elements of the data industry in particular that factor into that in a positive and negative way that may not be present in other industries? Um. So, so keep keep going on that. What do you what? Um, well, well, I mean, in particular of the industry that you come from, from within Equinix, a company that uh, is creating a data uh, as a product. What I'm curious about is really if an understanding of the product in particular and what it takes to create the best possible version of that product. That understanding, to an extent, might trickle down into the mindsets of different um, employees within the company as to how they can best do that. Now, granted, everyone's going to have different roles and everyone's going to perhaps have slightly different interpretations based on a lot of different anecdotal factors. But do you think given what kind of product is being aimed for might positively or negatively affect how these individuals are going about trying to implement what they've learned from these trips, from these excursions. Does, I guess what I'm trying to say is, does the product play a part? Um, I, I think, I think so, because I think, um, you know, a lot of people, in technology companies <clears throat> and the bigger the company gets the more you know specific your role is and i might even say how, how the smaller your role is right you have more people doing you know the fo- focusing on smaller elements um and you know if if you have management and if you have managers who are intent on just saying Look, all I want you to do is, you know, move stuff down the assembly line or write this code and just do your job really, really, really well and repetitively. And if you want to work 15 hours a day, that's okay with me. In the end, you might have a positive short-term result, but the longer-term result is the person feels completely unmotivated, disenfranchised. And unless you get a person uh, and a group um, attached to the big picture. Um, And it may not just be the, you know, it may not just be what the product is supposed to do. It's like when the product goes out into the world, what does the product do out in the world? What is, you know, let's, let's run this thing to ground. I mean, how does what I do mean anything? Um, How does what I do um, affect the world? Um, because if I really don't think it does, 
it's meaningless. It's quite meaningless. So um, ultimately, you know, the most important thing for all of us is to have purpose in life. Um, people think, well, no, the most important thing is to have a job. It's like if you have a job making money, and uh, you're going to burn out. It's just like, yeah, I need money. I want money. But the, the, the opportunity we all have is to let each individual understand what the bigger picture is and what the biggest picture is and say, this is your purpose. This, you're, you're part of uh, something bigger than you. You're, part of, you're doing something really important. And even though you're doing you know, one small piece of it, you're part of this living, breathing organism. And when we, the output is you know something you know wonderful and extraordinary i mean i feel way better about being part of a, of something like that than i do of just trying to you know be more productive yet tomorrow than i was yesterday absolutely i i will say just to build on to that real quickly uh per personally from personal experience i will just say that i personally have never found the quote unquote work life balance dichotomy to to be particularly encouraging or healthy i think a more as you seem to be putting a more holistic approach that tends to be a lot more uh, encouraging and inspiring in the long run yeah and even with the balance i i, I do tell people there's never going to be balance okay um you know, because life isn't that way. It's like, well, I want to, I want to have a perfect balance, and so I'm gonna, you know, I'm in the middle of something that I'm doing, and it's really important, and I'm just gonna drop it and go home because it's time for dinner. <clears throat> it's like that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, really delving in and digging in, and when you're working, work, okay. And <clears throat> if you're just there at work watching the clock, that's drudgery. You know, they talk about something called flow. If you can get into, you know, something that you're really into and you lose track of time, um, that's called flow. And that's the most rewarding, wonderful work. Um, I would I wish that on everybody. OK, but it is not nine. It's not precisely nine to five. Um, you may have to call home and say, I'm in the middle of something and, you know, I'm not going to be home till 10 o'clock tonight. So. You know, for that day, you know, work to work, work took the precedent. But, you know, that on Thursday, when your kid has um, something at school at one o'clock and you need to leave at noon because you prioritized um, your 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 family life that week. That's kind of what I'm talking about. I mean, that's the balance. It's not. It's not trying to say, I want to spend 25% of my time doing this, 25% of my time doing that. It's prioritizing things in the right way at the right time, uh, which, gives you the, uh, which gives you the ultimate balance. A better, in terms of wordplay, if you'll allow me to say so, it's a better a synthesis of yeah. the more practical and the more idealistic of, of wanting to achieve that balance rather than saying, as you say, having a more scheduled brain if you will thinking more in terms of a literal schedule absolutely um so if we just begin to approach a couple of uh, closing remarks here um i was just wondering 
What would you say, given your time with Equinix, your your personal advice, your sage wisdom would be for encouraging those who have a great deal of emotional intelligence and can really bring that change, but maybe don't necessarily have perhaps either on the one hand, the most classic background for something like Equinix or the data industry in general, or they might be thinking to themselves, well, I I could never do this. You know, they don't know what they don't know. They know they've got a lot of EQ, but they don't think, oh, I could, they don't, they think to themselves, oh, I could never thrive in a place like Equinix, um, even though they might have a lot lot to offer. How in your experience, if, if any at all, would you see trying those people trying to come in? I would, you know, I was, you know, on the organizational chart at the top of the organizational chart. Um, so I'm a, I'm a C level executive. Um, but you know, I spent my career, um, in a lot of different roles at a a lot of different, you know, organizational levels. And I think that what I tell people is that you lead by example, you're either going to be a, you know, you can either be a leader or a follower. Um, you can either be a leader, even if you're a manager, you can be a manager or a leader because a manager is micromanaging the outcome. A leader is inspiring and motivating others. And your opportunity um, is in, in, in any company, in any organization is to, you know, is to be emotionally intelligent, um, to build strong relationships with other people, to be non-judgmental to give other people the benefit of the doubt, to engage other people. Don't hide in your cube. Don't eat lunch alone every day. You know, put yourself out there and build as many strong, trusted relationships as you can. And what will happen are, you know, so many positive things. And, you know, I would tell people, a lot of people, you know, think, look, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the lower ring of the company and I just need to show up and shut up and do my job. And, you know, I'm like, you know, well, that, that doesn't serve you. It doesn't serve the company. And I said, you know, some people think work is a four letter word and it's just hard and it's drudgery. I said, if you think about working at a place as a center of human development, that you're going to go in, if you sit at home I, this this working from home to me is 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 way less than desirable. It may be great for people to be able to you know just roll out of bed and you know their family's there and they get to spend more time with the family. But when you get up and get in the car and turn the key and go into an office where there's hundreds of other people that you can feed off, meet, learn, um, and expand your worldview. Um, if you look at, at, at that environment as a, as, a, as a center for human development, you, you, think, you look at the world completely differently. And I, I think that it's, that's the attitude that I would say to anybody who's at Equinix or coming into Equinix. It's like you have an opportunity because um, I've been there and I've seen it firsthand to meet the most extraordinary group of people you can possibly imagine. 
I know a lot of people who would love to be a part of an organization like that, who would who would go out of their way in defiance of a lot of uh, trends and um, general corporate and technological mores to frame it in those terms, because that language is incredibly powerful. <laughs> well, nevertheless, uh, Peter Ferris, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. It's been an absolute honor to get to know your uh, trials and tribulations and your real triumphs with this program, with these objectives. Well, Peter, thank you for having me. And my hat is off to you for uh, taking your weekends to go uh, dig up, uh, look under rocks and find people like me uh, and, and, uh, and, and stick a straw in and suck out some of uh, their uh, life value and what the, some of their thoughts. And um, I, I think uh, what you're doing is really interesting and really important, too. I hope. I hope I hope a lot of people listen. I I, I hope so too. And and frankly, as long as we're talking about rocks, as far as I'm concerned, I might as well have just struck gold here today. So thank you very much, and thank you everyone who has tuned in to listen to this. And now, if you'll excuse me, I've got to head back into the tower right now. But I will see every single one of you when I emerge. Take care and have a great night.